the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the book of Numbers. God had been faithful to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt through the desert wilderness just as he promised. He was preparing them to enter the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The first generation of Israelites had died out because of their idolatry and rebellious behavior towards God. Now is the time for the next generation to take hold of God's promises and to rely on Him. God had commanded Moses and the leaders to number the men to see how many would be ready for battle. They went tribe by tribe counting the congregation. Now we will see a particular issue come up that God will address as we join Pastor Will in Numbers chapter 27, verse 1. Theme of the book of Numbers is journeying with Jesus. We've seen Israel as they've come out of the promised land and they're journeying with the Lord. But sadly, the entire first generation that left Egypt is now dead because of their unbelief. They refused to trust the Lord. They rebelled over and over again. And so they end up missing out on what God had in store for them. Now it's up to the second generation to succeed where they failed. Chapter 26 began that fresh start as God has Moses count the nation to number the men of war. As they're going to go into conquered land, he starts over over from scratch. It's almost like we go back to right where Numbers chapter 1 started with this new generation. But before they can begin to conquer the land and go in, there are a few unfinished issues. The Lord had explained how they would divide the land, but some property rights issues come up in this chapter as well as the fact that Moses can't go in the land, so they need new leadership. So as we see Israel enter into this time of change of how God deals with this scenario regarding property rights and also the transfer of leadership from Moses to Joshua, may we realize that our own lives are supposed to be very different than everyone else's because we're following the Lord. So chapter 27, and we'll begin in verse 1. It says, then came, says after the census, and after the method for the dividing the land is done, all the property rights issues seem to be taken care of. It says, then came the daughters of Zelephohad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh. They were from the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And these are the names of his daughters, Mela, Noah, and Hogla, and Milcah, and Terza. Now, these are just five of them. They're the ones that bring this issue up to Moses. There's actually seven daughters in total. We see that earlier in the book of Numbers. They bring a complaint to Moses. They stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the princes of all the congregations, so all the leaders there, who were by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. They're there before the Lord. And they say, listen, our father died in the wilderness and he was not in the company of them that gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. But he died in his own sins, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be done away from among his family, because he has no son? Give unto us, therefore, a possession among the brethren of our 
father. So these five women lodge a complaint and they say, listen, Moses, our father died in the wilderness. Now, by saying that, that was an admission that their dad was part of the group that didn't trust the Lord to enter the promised land. We have to understand something else. So was everybody, (laughs) except for Joshua and Caleb, right? There's only two guys who escaped that judgment because they trusted the Lord and they believed that he could do what he said he'd do. And so everybody's in this boat, really. Their dad's no one unique. They're all in this boat. Mentions here, though, that even though that was the case, that he was not in the company of them that gathered themselves against the Lord. And then they explain, in the company of Korah. But he died in his own sins and had no sons. So the company of Korah, if you remember, Korah was a a Levite who wanted the priesthood. He wanted to be the high priest. And so he stirred up Dapham and Abiram who were uh, from the tribe of Simeon and to kind of rebel against Moses and, and therefore against the Lord since Moses didn't pick his position, God picked him for it. And they said, you take too much upon yourself. We're all God's people. We can all be used of God. I mean, that's a reality, but the truth is God doesn't pick everybody. And he has the reasons that he picks who he picks. Most of the time, it's not because they're the most competent. Usually it's because they're the weakest and he gets the most glory. So if you lodge your complaint and you say, well, I could do that, you're probably right. You could probably do it better, but you'd get the glory instead of God. So it really is a moot argument. I could run this church better than you, Pastor Will. Fine, you probably could, but that doesn't mean anything. That's not the means whereby someone enters into this role. It's a call of God. They had challenged that because they were greedy for more. And of course, the Lord dealt with them. But the daughters here, they explain, our dad wasn't part of that group. He wasn't, you know, an extra evil guy. He wasn't part of the rebellion instigated by Korah. And so they asked the question, yeah, he died in his own sin, but why should the name of our father be done away? You know, he hasn't done anything horrible beyond what anybody else did. Why should his name disappear, you know, from among his family, all the people of of the tribe of Manasseh? he didn't have a son. We propose a solution how to fix that. Give us his possession, the property that he would get normally. Since he has no sons, give it to us from among the brethren of our father. So when Manasseh gets their lot of land, they said, give the land that should have went to our dad to us. Don't just let our father's name disappear and be gone from, from the tribe of Manasseh. Now the request is very reasonable. You know, our dad isn't some extra bad sinner like Korah and his group. Everyone else's descendants are going to get an inheritance in the land, even though their forefathers didn't trust God. So why should our family name disappear? If that had happened, and and we don't see a resolution of this, these ladies would only have two options. They could either marry into other families, or they could be homeless. And they didn't think that was right. And so they asked to be elevated to the same status as a son would be so that they could carry on their father's name and receive his land. Now, a couple of things to reflect on in this request. Number one, this is a request that's made in faith. Unlike the previous generation, they fully believe they're going to conquer the land, so much so that they want to make sure they get their possession. How different from that first generation that questioned everything that God put in their path. These are godly women who trust God and are believing his promises. They mixed faith into his promises. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it talks about how that first generation didn't do that, and it exhorts us not to make the same mistake. In Hebrews 4.1, it says, therefore, let us reverence God, lest a promise being lest us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them because they didn't mix it with faith when they heard it. They heard the promise of God. And they thought, yeah, I don't think he can do it. And they didn't trust the Lord. And so because of that, they missed out. And the exhortation that Paul says to his listeners in the book of Hebrews, he says, don't miss out. Don't do what they did. Well, these 
ladies are not doing that at all. They are trusting the Lord. They are taking him at his word. And I would ask you that tonight as we, you know, just begin, you know, do you, do you trust God's word? Do you believe what he says is true? Do you believe his promises? Even when it seems like everything is flying in the opposite direction of what God says he'll do. Trust his word. Second, this is a request that is rooted in two very important understandings. They properly understood God's just judgment for sin, and they properly understood that God is a wonderfully merciful God. Notice all throughout this year, they don't excuse their father's sin of unbelief, and they don't challenge the fact that he died in the wilderness. They said, listen, our dad, he made his choices, all right? He made his choices, and we understand why he's died in the wilderness. But we're different people. We, we don't want to make those choices. We want to make the right choices. They don't excuse their father's sin. They don't challenge that judgment. But they also, they don't just sit there and go, well, I guess we're stuck because dad was a loser. They said, no, we believe that God is a merciful God, and we're coming to him in faith, believing that he'll grant our request. Listen, don't ever let your failures keep yourself from casting yourself on God's mercy. Don't ever do that. Because if you stay away and let God's judgment fall on you, it will crush you. It will crush you. But if you draw near to receive mercy, the God will break you so he can remake you. That's what Jesus said. He said, on whomsoever this stone falls, it will crush you. But if you fall on the stone, you'll be broken, but you can be remade. The Bible says David's a man after God's own heart. But it's funny, Saul, of course, was rejected as king of Israel, right? Because he wasn't a man for God's own heart. But let's weigh those two guys out, okay? Saul, did he, was he unfaithful to his wife like David was? Or with someone else? No. What about, you know, was Saul a bad dad? Well, we could question, you know, how he treated Jonathan at times. But I mean, not like David. David was a horrible father. David broke every one of the Ten Commandments. And yet David's the man after God's own heart. Why? What's the difference? Well, when God confronted Saul with his sin, Saul would just be like, oh, woe is me, I'm a loser, whatever. And he'd never make things right with God. But David, when God would confront him, he'd repent and he would say, Lord, I know what's in here, but cleanse me, Lord. You know, I remember when David sinned by numbering the people because he got prideful. Remember Joab, his captain came to him. Joab's not a great, he's not a spiritual giant. Joab's a pretty carnal guy. When Joab's coming to you going, I don't think this is a good idea, David. I don't think the Lord's going to like this. When a guy like that comes to you and warns you about your choices, you might want to rethink him. But David goes through with it anyway, and God judges Israel. But what does David do? God gives him three choices. The Lord confronts him with it. And he says, listen, he goes, I can have you be defeated by your enemies for a certain period of time. I can bring a plague. I mean, he gives these choices. And what David decides to do, he goes, I don't want to fall into the hand of my enemies. They won't show me mercy. He goes, I'm going to fall into the hand of the Lord because I know he's a merciful God. So he chose for a plague and the plague was stayed because the Lord saw the people like sheep having no shepherd. And he, he just, his heart broke and he stopped. God's a merciful God. He doesn't want to give us what we deserve. So if you have failed, then you need to come. Draw near to receive mercy. God will break you in doing so, but it's so he can remake you and he can change you and make you new what he wants you to be. So first, it was a request of faith. Second, it was a request of incredible understanding of, of who God is. But thirdly, it was a radical request, radical request. See, in this day, women never had property rights, never had property rights in any culture back then. And yet they make the request because they believe their God was different. They believed he was different. He wasn't like everyone else. Why would they think that? Well, they believed that God truly loved them, that he valued them, that God was fair to all, and that God was good. Why would they think that? They thought that because that's who God declared himself to be. When we look at Exodus chapter 34, if you turn there real quick, just a few books to the left. 
when Moses was praying for God to be merciful to the nation after their idolatry, their sin with the golden calf, the Lord says, yeah, I'll forgive and I'll go with you. And he, I mean, God just is incredible. And Moses is just blown away by God's goodness and he figures he'll strike while the iron's hot. And he's like, Lord, I wanna know you like, like I've never known you before. Show me your glory. Show me exactly what you're like. So the Lord says, I can't show you my full glory. I'll, that'll turn you into a crispy critter. You can't handle that. But I will show you my afterglow. I'll show you what goes after me as I walk by. And as the Lord is passing by, he gives him the best glimpse of his glory he can by declaring his character. And in chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passed by before Moses and he proclaimed, this is who I am, Moses, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Merciful means he doesn't give us what we deserve. Gracious means he gives us what we haven't earned. He is long-suffering. God is very patient. He's abundant in goodness and truth. He's overflowing. He has more than enough goodness and truth. He has exactly whatever it is that we need. He's got it. Keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Whatever it is that you've done. Whether it was just a mistake, whether you knew what you were doing, did it anyway. He has forgiveness for you. And then, of course, though, we think, well, man, that's a kind of a pushover God. He goes, but I also will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, uh, under the third and fourth generation. What's God saying there is I don't change. My standard doesn't change. I don't change in my view towards right and wrong. And he goes, if, if you won't fall on my mercy, then you're going to get crushed by my judgment because I have to punish sin and I will deal with it. They heard this. They knew who God was and they believed it. They trusted it. They believed that God would be fair, that God loved them, that God valued them, and that he would be gracious and he'd be merciful. People often challenge the Bible's view of women by pointing to certain events in the Bible that reflect the culture of the times. Just because the Bible lists something doesn't mean it's the way God saw things. I love it when you get to the New Testament. Jesus was confronted on the issue of divorce. They said, no, well, didn't Moses give us a law that we could put away our wives? And what did Jesus say? He goes, from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, God made some concessions for you yokels, but that's not how he intended it to be. That was not his heart towards this. God's heart, when we see some of these things in scripture, it's just the times they were living in. Just because it's in scripture doesn't mean it's the way it's supposed to be. It's only the way it's supposed to be if God tells us that's the way it's supposed to be. You know, the Bible says Judas went out and hanged himself. We don't need to go and do that likewise. We don't need to follow that example. There are many bad examples in the scripture. Just because it's there, when it's there, we say it's inspired, it's because it really happened. But there's a lot of bad examples there. So the Bible's view of women, you know, you can't challenge that because you see some of the culture there that was, you know, didn't value women. Because when we look at God's statements and actions, we see he always elevates women, always just like we see here. Because the Lord, Moses, verse five, he brought the cause before the Lord and look what the Lord says. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, verse six, saying, verse seven, the daughters of Zelephahad speak right. The word there, right, means truthfully, justly, honestly. They are right, Moses. They are right. They have a justified complaint here. So the Lord says this, you shall surely give them a possession of an inheritance among their father's brethren, and you shall cause the inheritance of their father to pass unto them. The Lord gives them equal status as property owners to every other man in the nation. Now, you need to understand that is unheard of in this time period, unheard of. No one did that. No one ever did that. And yet the Lord says, they are right. This is the change we're going to make. And to ensure that future generations never lose their property because of a lack of children, the Lord gives a new law here, verses 8 through 11. And you shall speak unto the children of Israel, saying, if a man die 
and he have no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass unto his daughter. And if he have no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance unto his brothers. If he have no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance unto his father's brethren. If his father have no brethren, then you shall give his inheritance unto his kinsmen that is next to him of his family, and he shall possess it. And it shall be unto the children of Israel. This is a statute of judgment as the Lord commanded Moses. This is a law that's added to all the laws from Exodus and Leviticus and numbers that have come before you can put this right beside it. So the idea here is that God's desire was that property would never just go to the highest bidder, would never just pass into someone else's hands. In fact, as we read in Leviticus, remember every seven years, property reverted back to its owner. Every 50 years, property reverted back to its original owner. And the idea was, is that way, if you fell on hard times, you never lost your inheritance. You never lost your possession. It stayed in the family over that period of time question that's often asked is, well, if the Lord knows everything, why didn't he give this law before the situation came up? Doesn't this seem like a little bit after the fact? Well, I understand what you're saying there, but you need to recognize you're not God. And I say that because the first thing we understand about God is he wants us to ask. He wants us to trust that he's good and to make requests on that basis. That's what these ladies do. God doesn't lay it all out there and just go, there it is. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to seek him, believe in God. I know you're good. You know, how many times in situations in my life, I come to the Lord and go, Lord, I don't know what to do about this situation, but Lord, I believe you're good. And I ask that you do this. I believe you love me. So I ask that you'll do this. I believe you're fair and just. So I ask that you do this. And the Lord, you know, he works in our lives accordingly. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. God could surely at any moment in our lives with whatever problem we're having, just step in and go, blammo, everything's fine. But his desire is that we would look to him, that we would trust in his goodness, that we would be crying out to him. That way we know where our source is. Secondly, though, the Lord loves to take opportunities to highlight how he's different. He could have given this law. Now it's all by itself. It gets all this attention that we're spending time talking about it tonight because he loves to highlight how he is different. And this one clearly shows that. God does not value men over women or vice versa, women over men. And the New Testament confirms that we have an equal spiritual inheritance as well as men and women. We read it in our scripture reading in Galatians chapter three, verses 27 through 29, where it says very clearly here, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and your heirs according to the promise. We're all joint heirs with Christ. There's no like women's reward in heaven and guys reward in heaven. There's none of that. We're joint heirs in Christ. And I bring this up because it's not like the Mormons teach where your only hope if you are a woman is to be somebody's celestial wife making babies for all eternity. Congratulations. Guys get to rule their own planet, but we don't have any issues between men and women in our group. None of that's in the Bible, by the way. Now, you might be thinking, okay, well, so if we're equal in Christ, what about this whole submission thing in marriage? Equal value does not equal carbon copy. Everyone in the family has different roles to play. Everyone in life has different roles to play. I'm not the CEO of Google or anything else, even though I think that would be cool. I'm not any of that. I I love sports and, and, you know, growing up, I wanted to be a professional baseball player, but I'm not. And now I'm not doing this because I couldn't do that. But my point is, is that growing up as a kid, I want to do that. That was what I wanted to be. So I go, I can't be the next Reggie Jackson. I guess I'll go be a pastor. 
That's not what I'm saying. The idea is that, you know, I was a kid that I aspired to that. I wasn't as good as, as some of the people out there. And I, I recognized in my senior year, even though I had some scholarship offers, that I'm probably not going to be able to make it all the way to the pros. And at the same time, God had put a calling on my life, you know, and I, I had to make a choice. We can't all do the same things. If everybody's the leader, then nobody, who's following? Good luck preaching to your congregation of none. Families require structure to operate soundly. And God, in his word, and in his wisdom, for whatever reason, has determined that the leadership role in the family falls to the husband. Now, why is that? Well, that's a Bible study all on its own, probably multiple Bible studies, so we don't really have the time to go to that scope tonight. But suffice it to say, some of it has to do with how mankind fell in the garden. There was a specific way that happened, and in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Lord explains that there are, are consequences because of that. Number two, some of it has to do with how God created men and women differently, and if you haven't figured that out yet, you haven't been married long enough. We are different, very different. Well, all of it has to do with the fact that God knows us better than ourselves and therefore knows what's best for a family to operate well, much better than I ever could or Dr. So-and-so as his own TV show ever could. Now, you might be saying, well, yeah, but then doesn't that make a woman lesser than a man? I'd argue that the man on point in a military squad is one of the most important individuals on the team. If he gets off and doesn't see the enemy or he leads you down into a trap, everybody dies. I would say he's incredibly important, maybe the most important member of the team. And yet, there's someone else who has a role of commander or captain, not the guy on point. If importance stems from titles, can I dare say you've missed the point? Can I dare say that your issue isn't an equality issue, but a pride issue? If your issue is about who has the title of who's in charge, can I dare say your problem isn't with equality? Your problem is with you want to be in charge? And that's a pride issue. I don't sit around my house and going, the Lord gave me the responsibility to be the leader of my family, and y'all better get in line. I get on my knees and I go, God, I don't know what to do. Can you please help me? And many times as I'm, I have decisions to make here at the church, I'm in the same spot. I don't sit there at my desk and tap my pen and go, well, you know, I know how this goes because I'm super pastor. I go, God, what do I do? How would you handle this situation? And I'm sure if I polled a bunch of people, they'd be like, well, I know what I would do if I were the pastor. But I don't really know if that's what God wants us to do. I think he wants us in that place where we're going, God, I don't know what to do, but I know you do. And so will you lead me so that I can lead these people into what's right and what's true and what's just? He might be saying, okay, well, I get how family works, but what about this whole women not being pastors thing? Doesn't the Bible discriminate against women there? Turn to First Timothy chapter two. Oh yeah, we're going there tonight. I'm not gonna go through this whole passage because that, again, is a Bible study or two in and of itself. I wanna highlight a couple things. Verse 12, chapter two, very important. But I do not, this is First Timothy, chapter two, verse 12. But I do not suffer which means to permit or allow a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, it doesn't mean women have to be quiet. What he's saying there is to not be in the role of of teacher pastor, where it says there not to teach. Literally, the way the phrasing is in the Greek, it means not to occupy the position of the teacher in the church. He says, I do not allow that. Okay, so that's number one, clear command. Chapter three, 1 Timothy, verse two. A bishop then, verse two, must be blameless the husband of one wife. You cannot qualify for that if you are of the female gender. That is a requirement for ministry and it's not just interchangeable. And the reason we know that, let's go down here to verse four and five. The third requirement Paul gives. They also need to be one that rules well their own house, having his children in subjection with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Because of the family structure, 
A woman cannot occupy that role of senior pastor. They cannot occupy the role of elder because they cannot meet those qualifications. They don't rule their own home. That's the job that God has given to the husband to do. So because of that, a woman cannot be a pastor. Now, when I bring this up, you need to realize something because people go, oh, see, so the Bible does make women lesser. No, this is in fact the only position, the only area of service that God prohibits from them. The Bible says a woman could pray publicly. She can prophesy publicly. She could, so I mean, we could get up here and have a gal share testimony. She could come and share a word from the Lord. All those things are okay, but she cannot occupy the regular teaching position of pastor. Okay. I'm not, I didn't write it. Throw the tomatoes up there, not here. That is what God says. Okay. So why is that ruling position therefore denied them in the church? Again, for whatever reason, God has determined that men are to lead. Notice in these requirements here, if you read through them all, with the exception of being able to handle the word of God well, to be able to teach, there is no mention about skill, intelligence, or acumen. None of that here. None of it. I have met some of the most amazing Bible teachers I've ever met are gals. It has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with competence, intelligence, acumen, skill set, training, any of that. None of that is mentioned here. It's not about capability. It's about God's designed plan. God has always been a defender of those that society would cast out or forget. God instating these property laws for the women of the children of Israel would be radically different from how the rest of the world at the time treated women, thus revealing God's heart and nature, that he loves and treats women and men equal, no matter the gender, color, socioeconomic status, age, demographic, God cares about every single person he ever created. He wants the very best for every single person that is only found through a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.